I'd like to ask uh, that you turn with me to our text for this morning, which is Psalm 125. Psalm 125, we're in a series looking at the Psalms of Ascent, and uh, this is kind of smack dab in the middle of them. As, they're, as you're finding your way there, I'll give you a little bit of time to open to the text. I'll tell you a brief story. I was at my gym on Friday, and um, as an opening question for the class I was at, they asked, so who do you think's going to win this weekend, U of M or Michigan State? And uh, I said, oh, are they playing each other this weekend? <laughs> and people said, you're not from around here, are you? So they all knew that I had just moved back to the state, so... All right, Psalm 125, this is what the psalmist writes to God's people back then as well as to us as God's people today. And he writes this, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, a few years ago I bought a new smartphone and uh, it came with a warranty. Basically, if anything happened within the first 90 days, I could take it back uh, to the store and uh, they would take it back and they would give me a new one. And I'm glad that I had that warranty because unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Uh, About a month or so into owning it, I started to have all sorts of issues with it. Uh, For one, it would kind of mysteriously drop my calls sometimes. I would be right in the middle of talking to somebody on the phone and all of a sudden I would realize they weren't there anymore. It also, at other points, it would just sort of inexplicably shut down, even when I had just fully charged it. And then most frustrating for me as a music lover was that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't seem to get any of my music library to load on it. And uh, so finally I had had enough and I I took it into the store. And I started explaining all of this to the sales associate, um, but pretty quickly he just stopped me and he said, it's no problem, it's all covered. It's all under warranty. It's kind of a blanket policy. It it covers everything. We'll take it back. We'll give you a new one, and and you can be on your way. No questions asked. And that's what they did. Pretty soon, I had a replacement phone that didn't have any of the issues that I'd been dealing with. Well, in a similar way, Psalm 125 functions as sort of a blanket policy, too. It, It covers everything. Just like that warranty on my phone, there's no questions asked. The only difference is that instead of guaranteeing the replacement of a product, it instead guarantees to us as God's people that we will experience his ongoing protection and security. And in that way, it's actually pretty similar to the psalm that we looked at last week, Psalm 124. We've been using Eugene Peterson's book on the Psalms of Ascent along obedience in the same direction as a a guide of sorts for our study of these psalms. And Peterson themes these two psalms in similar ways. Uh, The theme of Psalm 124, he says, is help. It's an expression of God's help and the assistance that he provides us in difficult times. This one then, Psalm 125, he says, is about security. It's about the security the protection and the safekeeping that God offers to us as his people. 
The difference, though, is in their scope. And we talked about this a little bit uh, last week. But put simply, Psalm 124 is a bit more specific. It, It looks at and recalls and remembers specific instances of God's help in the past, and it celebrates those. Meanwhile, Psalm 125 is more general. It's less of a specific remembrance of God's help in days gone by and more of a theological blanket statement about the kind of security that God provides to us at all times and in all sorts of different ways. And so as such, it's also incredibly comforting. Just listen again to the way the psalmist begins. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. That's the kind of security that God offers to his people. Just like the mountains wrapping around a city offer it a a built-in sort of form of defense, built-in walls almost, In the same way God wraps his arms around his people, he surrounds them, he protects them, and he makes them secure. They actually become like a mountain themselves, says the psalmist. Firm, fixed, immovable, and unshakable. Able to endure whatever may come. That's the depth of security that those who trust in the Lord experience. And they experience it all the time. Regardless of whatever threats they might face, God's people can rest secure in his abiding protection. That's what the psalmist gets at in verse three. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. In his commentary on this verse, biblical scholar James Mays writes, verse three is concerned with a danger to pilgrim Israel that the scepter of wickedness should rest on the allotment of the righteous and cause the righteous to do wrong. The language, he says here, is tantalizing in its elusiveness. Does the scepter of wickedness refer to the rule of foreigners or to a prevalence of deceit and injustice in the society? In other words, the, the psalmist here is imagining a scenario where Israel finds herself overrun with wickedness. Um, It could be that a foreign power has invaded, taken Israel over, and forced her into that kind of evil. It could be that that evil comes from Israel's society itself. The psalmist doesn't specify. But both of those things happened numerous times during Israel's history. Sometimes foreign powers would invade. They would take Israel over, and they would try to force them to live like they did, abandon their faith, worship other gods. Maybe the most famous example of that was when the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes invaded and took over Jerusalem. After he marched into the city, he went straight to the temple and erected a statue, an idol of the Greek god Zeus right there in the temple itself. And then he took a pig and he sacrificed it on the altar of incense. If you know anything about Jewish kosher laws, then you know that was a really big deal. He was trying to force the Jewish people out of their faith. Didn't work because it actually sparked the Maccabean Revolution which defeated his troops, kicked them all out of the Holy Land and secured independence for the Jewish people at least until the Romans came along later. But it's a good example of the different times in Israel's history when a foreign power invaded them and tried to force them out of their faith. 
Could that be what the psalmist is referring to here? A hostile takeover by a pagan nation from the outside? Or is he saying that the fault actually lies with God's people themselves? Have they strayed? Have their leaders become corrupt? Have they ceased to be the just, righteous society God intended and have instead slid into living like their unbelieving neighbors around them? After all, we see example after example after example of that in the Old Testament as well, right? Especially in books like Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. They're filled with examples of Israel herself going astray. Either way, says the psalmist, the point is the same. It will not last. It will not last. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. Part of God's security, part of his protection, part of his safekeeping of his people is that he won't allow wickedness and evil to persist forever. He won't allow them to exist, his people to exist under the unjust and oppressive rule of foreign kings who want to wipe out their belief in him. He won't allow them to wallow in their own sin and unrepentant unrighteousness either. The reign of wickedness is not endless. It has an end. It has an expiration date. And those who trust in the Lord can also trust that they will see it. After all, the psalmist prays, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. The psalmist's point is that God is a God of justice. He will see to it that things get set right, that the good enjoy good, that the bad are punished, and that things will ultimately turn out the way they're supposed to. It might not be according to our timing, right? Might not happen according to the timeline that we would wish to see it happen, but at some point, That's what he'll do. That's how he works. That's what he does. That's the kind of security he guarantees. In other words, God guarantees that his people will have peace. And that's how the psalmist concludes. He writes simply at the end of verse five, peace be on Israel. We've talked about this a few times already in this series that word peace, it's a loaded term in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for it is shalom, but it doesn't mean what we normally think of when we think of peace in English. It doesn't just mean you know, the absence of a conflict or a return to the status quo. It doesn't mean that things are just okay. Instead, it means flourishing, abundance, that things are the best that they can possibly be. That's true peace. That's the biblical understanding of it. That's what shalom is. And that, the psalmist says, is what it looks like when we trust in the Lord. That's what it means to experience his protection. That's what it looks like to receive our security from him. It looks like the unshakable firmness of a mountain. Being surrounded by a protective ring of mountain peaks the knowledge that wickedness will not last, receiving good for good, justice for evil, and experiencing the deep and abiding peace of the Lord. That is what his security looks like. What it doesn't look like, though, 
is blindness to the realities of a fallen world. You see, this psalm is an incredible confession of the security we find in God. That really struck me as I was studying this psalm. When you really take the time to read it, to pray it, to ponder it, Psalm 125 expresses a breathtaking degree of assurance for those who put their trust in God. And yet, it's not a cliche. It's not some half-baked, feel-good reassurance that doesn't, in the end, amount to much. It's not a list of empty promises. Instead, it's an expression of the security God offers us as we see it lived out in our day-to-day, real-world, down-to-earth lives. I'll give you an example. Uh, There's a parable I've heard a number of times in a number of places over the years, mostly in sermons. Um, Maybe you've heard it, too. It's called The Drowning Man. The story goes that there's a man who's stuck on the roof of his house during a flood. You heard this one? A few of you? The waters are rising and so the man prays to God, Lord, please save me. Shortly after he prays, a man in a rowboat comes along and he says to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. The man on the roof replies, no thanks, God will save me. So the guy in the rowboat rows away. Short time later, another guy, this time in a motorboat, comes along. And he also says to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. Again, the man on the roof replies, no thanks, God will save me. So the guy in the motorboat goes away too. Finally, a little while later, a helicopter comes along and the pilot sees the man on the roof and he lowers down a rope and shouts down to him, grab the rope and I'll lift you to safety. But the man on the roof shouts back, no thanks, God will save me and the helicopter flies away as well. Soon after that, the water rises above the roof, the man drowns, he goes to heaven, and he confronts God. God, he said, I trusted you. Why didn't you save me? God looks at the man. There's a moment of silence. And he says, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? It's kind of a cheesy story. But it makes a good point, right? It makes a good point, which is that God's security doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it doesn't always come to us in the form of a a miraculous intervention. Sometimes it does. You know, as people of faith, we believe in that sort of thing, right? We believe that miracles are possible. That's certainly one way that God might care for us. But more often than not, we tend to see the security that God surrounds us with expressed in a multitude of ordinary, mundane, run-of-the-mill sorts of ways. You know, it's the seatbelts that we wear when we drive. It's the clothes we purchase, wash, and wear. It's the homes we construct, furnish, and live in. It's the exercise that we do to stay healthy, the doctors we visit for a checkup, and the financial planner who helps us live within our means. All of those things and so many more besides are the tangible, everyday, ordinary ways that God uses to provide his security for us as his people. One interesting example that I actually, I found myself thinking about a lot in preparation for this sermon was guns. Now I'll just say from the start, I'm not a gun guy. I mean, clearly, right, look at me. I've never owned a gun, I probably never will. I've shot a handful of times, I'm terrible at it, okay? Um, I actually hold a number of biblical and theological objections to guns. 
Uh, I've even flirted with outright pacifism over the years. I'm not saying that you have to. I'm simply saying I have, okay? Uh, And yet, as I was thinking about this sermon, there's at least one of the objections to guns that I've used over the years. I'm like, I don't think I can use that anymore. You see, one of the arguments that people who are in favor of guns often use is that they help protect people, right? It's all fine to argue against guns, they say, until you find yourself in a situation where there's a bad guy who has one, and then what do you want? You want a good guy to have one to stop him, right? And I used to, I'll be honest, I used to kind of roll my eyes at that argument, and I'd often respond to people who said that by saying something along the lines of, as a Christian, I think I just prefer to trust that God will save me. And then as I was writing this sermon, I thought, you know, that sure sounds a lot like the drowning man's argument, doesn't it? (laughs) Right? I I was thinking about how we experience God's tangible, down-to-earth, real-life security in our lives, and I realized that that response sounds exactly like that parable. And I thought, I don't think I can use that anymore. As that parable demonstrates, that's not always the way that the world works. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist without sin. It doesn't exist as a fanciful reality where nothing ever goes wrong, and neither does God's security. It exists in this world. It manifests itself here. It operates in the dust and the grime, our Sunday to Saturday workaday existence, the real world, as we say. And so maybe there's a place for people who like and use firearms to use that argument, for them to say that guns are simply a tool that we can use to responsibly protect ourselves and those we love. Maybe it's fair to say that when used well, guns can indeed be seen as part of the security God offers us. It's not gonna change my opinion of them. I'm still not gonna go and buy one, but it's at least something to think about. So is this, I think. Over the course of this pandemic, I have not appreciated the way some folks have used the line, faith over fear. To me, it seems to be more or less that exact same drowning man argument that I used to use when it came to firearms. No need to take any precautions, no need to do anything to keep ourselves or others safe, no need to follow the advice of medical professionals. We simply need to trust God during this pandemic, believe more, faith over fear. And I get it because that sounds good, and it sounds pious. I'm just gonna have faith, I'm gonna trust in God, faith over fear. But I'll be honest, at least the way that some people have used that line, I think there's a whole host of problems with it. I mean, for starters, that's not how we live any other area of our lives. As far as I know, none of the people who have used that line, faith over fear, have gone and canceled their life insurance policies. I don't know of anyone who's liquidated their IRA accounts or their 401ks. I haven't seen anyone having yard sales to sell all their possessions and give the money to the poor, and yet that's where that logic would take us, right? If we were to extend it all the way and live it consistently in every area of our lives, I think we'd all end up being Benedictine monks. Another problem with it that I have is, what happens if you do get COVID and, Lord forbid, you die? Does that just mean that you didn't have good enough faith? Enough faith, strong enough faith? I don't think we wanna go down that road. The biggest problem I have with that line though, faith over fear, is that it just doesn't square with the theology of God's security presented in this psalm and elsewhere in scripture. Because again, God's security doesn't exist in a vacuum. 
It exists in the real world, and he often uses real-world ways to secure us as his people. And I'll be honest, I feel nervous even bringing this up. I have been nervous all week about preaching this sermon. I said I was in the gym earlier this week. I was there every single day trying to work out the anxiety, okay? I am so sore. Um, I mean, we have become so politicized on this stuff that we can't even talk about it anymore. I'm pretty sure I've already offended everyone here this morning, right? The liberals are going to, right? The liberals are going to be, well, he talked about guns. And the conservatives are going to be like, well, he talked about COVID. And I said the same thing. Neither argument works. It's just like the drowning man. But this is something that the church has long recognized. And this is why I feel it's important to bring up. And this is why I felt like it was the Holy Spirit putting this on my heart this week. Because God's security, while sometimes manifested in miraculous ways, most of the time is manifested in mundane ways. And to illustrate that, I want to quote from an almost 500-year letter. It's written by a guy named Martin Luther. I don't know if you've heard of him. 504 years ago on this very day, he nailed something called the 95 Theses to a church door in Wittenberg, and I guess it ended up being kind of a big deal. A few years after that, that was in 1517. Ten years later, in 1527, another pastor wrote a letter letter to Luther. There was a pandemic raging in Germany at the time, and the pastor asked Luther for advice, more or less how should Christians behave during a pandemic. And there was a bit of a delay, because Luther was a busy guy, but eventually he wrote back. And I searched high and low for his response, because I actually printed it out at the start of COVID in the first week when everything shut down in Wisconsin, and I read it, and I couldn't find my copy. So I printed it off again this week. And basically, Luther, like he always does, says a lot of things. And to be honest, some of it's a bit contradictory. First of all, he says, if you're really afraid of the plague, then, and you're afraid of dying, then go ahead. You should flee. You should go somewhere safer. Then he says, he says it's not wrong to try and preserve yourself. Then he says, if you're not afraid, you should stay, because it's your duty to take care of those who are sick and dying. To pastors and church leaders like myself, he says, you really should stay, because you can't abandon your flock. But then he says, but I guess if you're really, really scared, then you can leave too. It's like, thanks for the advice. (laughs) But then he says this, and it's a little long, but I think it's important, so I'm gonna read it. Dear friends, let us not become so desperate as to desert our own whom we are duty-bound to help and flee in such a cowardly way from the terror of the devil or allow him the joy of mocking us and vexing and distressing God and all his angels. For it is certainly true that he who despises such great promises and commands of God and leaves his own people destitute violates all of God's laws and is guilty of the murder of his neighbor whom he abandons. I fear that in such a case God's promise will be reversed and changed into horrible threats and the psalm will then be read this way against them. Accursed is he who does not provide for the needy but escapes and forsakes them. The Lord, in turn, will not spare him in evil days, but will flee from him and desert him. The Lord will not preserve him and keep him alive and will not prosper him on earth, but will deliver him into the hands of his enemies. The Lord will not refresh him on his sickbed or take him from the couch of his illness. For the measure you give will be measured to you. Nothing else can come of it. It is terrible to hear this, more terrible to be waiting for this to happen, most terrible to experience it. What else can happen if God withdraws his hand and forsakes us except sheer devilment and every kind of evil? It cannot be otherwise if against God's command one abandons his neighbor. 
This fate will surely overtake anyone of this sort unless he sincerely repents. What Luther is saying there is you can't just flee. You can't just leave people behind to die. He says this is said, he said basically what he's saying is our fear cannot, out, cannot outweigh our duty as Christians. This is said as an admonition and encouragement against fear and a disgraceful flight to which the devil would tempt us so that we would disregard God's command in our dealings with our neighbor and so we would fall into sin on the left hand, on the one hand. And then the next paragraph he says, others sin on the other hand, on the right hand. They are much too rash and reckless, tempting God and disregarding everything which might counteract death and the plague. They disdain the use of medicines, they do not avoid places and persons infected by the plague, but lightheartedly make sport of it and wish to prove how independent they are. They say that it is God's punishment If he wants to protect them, he can do so without medicines or our carefulness. This is not trusting God, but tempting him. God has created medicines and provided us with intelligence to guard and take good care of the body so that we can live in good health. No, my friends, use medicine. Take potions that can help you. Fumigate house, yard, and street. Shun persons and places wherever your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered. And act like a man who wants to put out a burning city. What else is an an epidemic but a fire which, instead of consuming wood and straw, devours life and body? You ought to think this way. Very well, by God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly awful. Therefore, Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should not wish to take me, or if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me so that I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above." See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. And he goes on. A lot, actually. There's a bunch more there. I'd recommend reading the whole thing, actually, if you're interested. Um, But put simply, Luther's point is that God expresses his care and security for us in normal, everyday, ordinary ways. The things he's provided us as gifts in his creation to make use of. And that's what I think the psalmist is getting at in this psalm, too. Again, the psalmist doesn't articulate a shallow, hollow, surface-level sort of trust in God. He's not saying that every instance of God's security will be some supernatural intervention. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. God does do miracles. But more often than not, the security we experience from God takes place within the normal contours of his creation. The natural confines of our daily lives, the regular mundane moments when we realize that we have what we need and God's security has come through yet again for us. It's what Jesus himself taught us to pray when he said, give us today our daily bread. The groceries that he gives us the resources to buy are his gifts. 
Likewise, the dentists who check our teeth and keep us from oral disease, the airbags our cars are equipped with to protect our heads, the water in the tap we can drink at any moment to quench our thirst, the savings that we hang on to for a rainy day, and the sump pump in the basement that keeps the rain from flooding in. The fact is that God's everyday gifts of security surround us, just like the mountains surround Jerusalem. They hedge us in, they protect us, and they remind us of the God in whom we trust. There's a beautiful little book that I read a few years ago called 1,000 Gifts by a Christian author named Ann Voskamp. If you've never read it, I highly, highly recommend it. In the book, Voskamp details her journey towards recognizing God's everyday graces and gifts in her life. Put simply, one day she decided to start listing all the little things that she noticed that God was doing for her in her life. And that day of listing those blessings became an entire year, and by the end of it, she had written down a thousand ways, a thousand gifts that she recognized God giving to her. And it was ordinary stuff. I mean, it was just everyday normal things but it taught her to be on the lookout for the ways that God's security, protection, and provision were at work in her life each and every day. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, the beginning of God's work in our lives is actually one of those miraculous, out-of-the-ordinary, special, one-time-in-history moments. It happened over a weekend. We commemorate it in the spring each year. It started with a man betrayed by his friends, Arrested, beaten, mocked, led to a hill where he was nailed to a cross and crucified. And by the end of the day, he was dead. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. Because it turns out that he wasn't just a man. He was actually the son of God. His name is Jesus Christ, and in his death, our sin died too. In his resurrection, we were raised to new life. And it's because of that incredible, miraculous, once-in-history event that we can count ourselves disciples and people of God. That's an example of God's miraculous security. And yet, just like the tangible expressions of his day-to-day mundane security in our lives, There's an ongoing, day-to-day, almost normal, if you will, aspect to the salvation that God has made possible for us as well. It's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's so ongoing that sometimes we even forget about it. We forget about him. We forget that he's there each and every day operating in the background, dwelling within us and making it possible for us to live the kind of trusting, righteous, good, peaceful way of faith and obedience that we are called to as God's people. And yet he's there all the same, present with us, living inside us each and every day. And it's because of him and his work in our lives that we can recognize and thank God for all of the other ways that he surrounds and protects us both when his security is momentous and miraculous and also when it's mundane and run-of-the-mill. He hedges us in. He protects us. He surrounds us and provides for us. They're his thousand gifts each and every day. 
Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your security. We thank you for the big, amazing, wonderful, miraculous moments when we see your security in action, and we thank you for the normal, everyday, mundane, run-of-the-mill ways that we see your security in action as well. You care for us so well in such a multitude of ways, and we thank you and praise you for it. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.